Right, friends, we're here. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of your word to us. Thank you, too, for um, Jesus. And we ask that today you would help us to discern more of your love and your care for us. Amen. Amen. So, it's been an interesting week. We um, recognize again that the king is dead. Uh Uh-huh. Queen is dead. Yes, you make the rocking world go round. And this week, even Prince is dead. And was there really purple rain recently? All people who had amazing gifts, amazing talents, and yet they've died. We're even hearing stories of Prince's philanthropy beginning to emerge. And yet, I want to know, I want to declare to you today that the King of Kings is alive and well, and that he wants you to know his awesomeness, his provision of purpose, and that he reigns on high. Now this week, as Anne has alluded to, we are in that midst of of a season that's between Easter and Ascension. So in a period of time when we remember that Jesus wasn't just raised to life, but that he appeared in a number of different settings to people um, across a period of, of 40 days or so. Hence, um, 40 days with Jesus. A number of us that are a regular part of the church um, have been um, reading through a book that's taken us through different um, uh, scenes of um, times when Jesus appeared uh, to to his his disciples, to his followers. Um, And this week, uh, we get to look at um, this one, which is all around overcoming failure. Um, So let's just flick through those screens, if we may. This is where we were. uh, a few weeks ago now, I can't remember, three weeks ago I suppose it was, um, Jesus appeared on the road to Emmaus to see a couple of disciples who didn't, who didn't recognise him to start with. Uh, and then, uh, d- no, that first one was not the Emmaus road. This is the Emmaus road, an opening journey. Um, it doesn't matter. Um, it does matter, but it, in the sums of, the, of, of where we are today. Let's just keep going, Roger. Um, last week we talked about Jesus coming in the midst of the disciples when they were in a locked room, and yet he appeared in their midst. And this week we're looking at this, this question, this Bible passage we've looked at today. And then in the next couple of weeks, um, we're going to look at the Great Commission, uh, where Jesus sends out his followers, and then um, the passages that run up to the whole thing about um, Jesus going back to heaven and the ascension of Jesus into heaven. So that's where we're going in the next couple of weeks. Let's come back to today. Um, You've heard the Bible passage, so you could see and you you can understand the hope that a title of overcoming failure is recognizing that Peter started out the passage um going out fishing, returning to his early um, career, and and then at the end of it being restored into right relationship with Jesus. So we're going to have um, a look at that this morning. Um, Now Simon Peter, many of you will know, um, was one of those that was Jesus, one of Jesus' closest disciples, one of his closest followers, and yet he was one of those that had that amazing capacity to engage mouth before he engaged brain. Uh, And so he put his foot in it a number of times, um, and he just said the wrong thing at the wrong time for a number of different reasons. And the the previous incident that's really in view here today is an incident when Jesus was arrested and was being on, he was on trial um, before he was sentenced to death, and um, Peter 
was brave enough to follow other people to watch the trial. And while he was warming himself round a charcoal fire, so others said to him, you're one of his followers, aren't you? And he denied it. Not once, not twice, but three times. Hence the three times of the questions later. Um, And so Peter... Um, kind of went through that whole thing of Jesus dying and then some of those reports about his resurrection, uh, yet knowing that he denied that he was a follower of Jesus. Uh, and this is the story then of, of that sense of Jesus coming into uh, Peter's present, then present struggles to deal with those, but also dealing with his past. So um, the passage opens with six of the disciples choosing to go fishing. Now, Peter was a fisherman by trade. Um, Not unreasonable, I think, for Peter to decide to say, hey, Jesus is dead, I need a career. Oh, look, I can fish still. Let's go back to fishing. Jesus, uh, Peter was, um, if you like, just kind of picking up the threads of normal life. And yet, as an experienced fisherman, he knew that fish came out, came to the surface at night to feed when it was a bit cooler, Uh, And um, so he could fully expect to get a reasonable catch of fish on an overnight fishing trip with six of his, five of his mates, six of them out there, man handling the nets. It was a reasonable expectation to get some fish. Now, there might have been massive overfishing in the three years that Peter had not been out fishing or something like that, but somehow Peter did what was normal and natural and right, and yet he didn't catch any fish. They didn't catch any fish. And into that situation, as it were, of frustration, of failure, of um, struggle, if you like, which is in a sense just being part of being human in a fallen world, so Jesus pitched up. And he stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't recognize who he was echoes there of when Jesus walked along the road with the other two disciples on the way to the village of Emmaus where again they didn't recognise who it was and so this, to the disciples this stranger who we know is Jesus called out to them friends, haven't you any fish? and you can imagine depending on how you say it this could feel a little mocking you know Friends, it's morning. You've been out all night. Have you still not got any fish? Or you could take the emphasis on the friends bit. Friends, what's gone wrong? Why haven't you got any fish? Haven't you got any fish still? How it was said, we don't know. We just get the straight words. So we're left with a bit of a kind of conundrum there. But but Jesus, I think, is wanting to be to, to highlight the friendship bit. But notice that they gave a straight answer. No, they answered. And so Jesus then gave some instruction. Throw you out on the other side of the boat, the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. And they followed his instruction. Jesus came to them in their present struggles. Jesus, they welcomed his intervention, not that they recognized it was Jesus at the time, and they followed his instruction. There's an echo there for us, isn't there? There's an echo there for us. That actually, we need not just to hear God's word, but to hear and to do something about it, to follow what we're called to do. 
So they threw the net out on the other side. And uh, on, on the right side, sorry. And lo and behold, when they did, it says at the bottom there, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Now clearly, it's difficult to tell now whether Jesus miraculously created the fish so that they could be caught or whether Jesus had a word and knowledge that he meant he knew where the fish were and actually if they put on the right not the left they got the fish doesn't really matter again it happened um, Jesus actually knew more about the fish than the fishermen and in the same way we could say Jesus know more, knows more about accountancy than the accountant or more about parenting than parents do more about teaching than teachers do more about life than we do and I think the good news is that Jesus here is, as it were, not a dead Jesus or even a risen Jesus who appeared to his disciples and went to heaven, but this is Jesus who is alive and present with us by his Spirit, who's still ready to help us in every area of life and ministry. There's never a situation or circumstance that he's not there, even if we don't fully recognise his presence with us. But I think the key is doing as we're told, obeying what we're told to do. So they obeyed his instruction, and so then, Jesus then offered an invitation. Look at the next page. He said to them, well eventually he says to them, have breakfast, but first there's his intervening words. Notice that it's, it says, the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's kind of code for John, who wrote John's Gospel. So John says to Peter, it's the Lord. Now John is very much your thinker, your contemplative one who, who observes situations. So, John the thinker says to Peter the activist, it's the Lord. And Peter the activist then, and to my mind this is a really odd way around to doing it, he put on his clothes and then he jumped in the water. For my money... I'd hold my clothes above my head, swim to the shore, and then put my clothes on so they're nice and dry. But this is what Peter apparently did. He put on his clothes and he jumped in the water and went to Jesus. Oh, and look, when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. The Bible was originally written in Greek, and the Greek word that describes the fire of burning coals is the same word for the fire where Peter warmed his hands during the trial of Jesus before he said to him, before he said, he denied, Peter denied that he knew Jesus. It's the same word. So there's a sense in which, certainly for John who wrote the gospel, there's a very clear link here, that this is intentional, that Jesus cooks this meal on the same kind of fire as Peter was around when he was beginning to deny Jesus. And so Jesus goes on and says to them, come and have breakfast. Come and eat with me. And notice at this point, Peter and Jesus, as it were, have not made up. Peter hasn't said sorry, but Jesus still says, let's eat together. 
And in many cultures, and particularly in the Middle Eastern culture, to eat together was a sign of friendship, of acceptance, of, of being reconciled to each other. So Jesus starts with the practical. He meets them where they're at and he says to them, let's eat together. Not just, you have some breakfast because you're hungry because you've been up all night, but let's us eat together. Jesus wanted to show, as it were, that mark of friendship, of fellowship, even before there was any sense of discussion about what had happened. And they all realised it was Jesus by then. And so they got on and they ate breakfast. And then after breakfast, Jesus began not just to look, as it were, at the present struggles of Peter. Not just to look at, you remember the stuff about how Peter hadn't actually caught any fish. But they began to talk about the past and the past failures of Peter. But in this, notice two things. One is that Jesus starts by talking not to Peter, but to Simon. As in referencing that person who we know as Simon Peter as Simon. So let me give you some context here. Simon was known as Simon as a kid. He grew up. He was the son of John. And when he met Jesus, Jesus said, you'll be no longer called Simon, but Peter. And Peter means rock. And there's that famous phrase, on this rock, I will build my church, said Jesus to Simon, who became Simon Peter. So Jesus gave Simon Peter a new name. But in this conversation, he's referencing Simon as Simon. And in a sense, that recognizes that Peter hasn't lived up to that that name of the rock. He wasn't the steady one. He was the unsteady one, if you like. He wasn't the one... He had had not acted in that way that echoed his name. So Jesus used Simon, son of John. And notice that it wasn't then a conversation around, why did you betray me? Why did you deny me, sorry? It was a conversation, as it were, that went deeper than that. The question is, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? Do you truly love me? Do you love me? The question is about love. Because at heart, what had happened was that Peter had loved his own reputation and his own life more than he had loved Jesus. And so he had said, I don't know this man. Because at the time of Jesus' arrest, you could imagine that they might well have gone, well, if you do know that man, then we'll arrest you too. We will try you too. And we could even crucify you as well. Okay, that's not the turn of events as history portrays it. But actually, Peter, back at the point of the trial, risked, or thought he risked, losing his life. If he said, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. But the reason he didn't admit to it, I think, was it was to do with Peter's heart. That Peter loved himself and his life more than he loved Jesus. Hence, Jesus then asked about love and Peter's love of Jesus rather than anything else. You know, I'm very conscious that as a parent, um, it's quite easy to focus in on 
on the presenting issues, isn't it? You know, if it was me, um, on a good day, I would say, you know, that was a crazy action. Although on a bad day, I might say, you crazy boy, you know, because I try hard not to denigrate character, but clearly we we all fail at times, don't we? Um, But actually, no, that's not what we get. Jesus refers, as it were, obliquely to that, but by talking about love, by talking about the matter of the heart, which is the heart of the matter. And I think it's the same for all of us. It's as it were not what we do, it's why we do it. Jesus is coming to Peter to heal him from his past failure. In doing so, Jesus is deliberately reminding Peter of his denial, not to make him feel bad, but to bring him to a place of repentance, of restoration and recommissioning. Why does Peter have to? Why, yes, why does Peter have to have to be faced up to his past? Well, it's because Jesus wants Peter to own the problem. Remember, friends that the person that we are best at deceiving is ourselves. It's been said, we have an innate ability for self-deception. It's, I think, one of the first things that happens in an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting is the first step is around recognising that you have a problem. It's the key to recovery for those that are alcoholics. He doesn't want Peter to carry that problem any further into the future. He wants Peter to recognise the problem. And actually that same question about love is that question that's at the heart, the root of, our, of humanity's sinful condition of our own lives somewhere at the root of our greatest failures is a failure to fulfill that great commandment to love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength and to to love our neighbour as ourself Jesus knows that if Peter is not only going to know forgiveness but going to be fit for service he has to deal with the heart issue otherwise we go around that cycle don't we of sin and confess and sin and confess we do something wrong we say sorry we do something wrong we say sorry we go back and do something wrong if our attitudes if our heart isn't changed so Jesus helps Peter not just to repentance but to restoration and then he offers him as it were a recommissioning Hence, all that that we've read there about feed my sheep, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep. And notice the results. If you read um, the book of Acts, which is that, refer- that um, history book of the, the early church, you'll see that Peter, um, in Acts chapter 2, is the leader of the disciples. He's preaching with boldness about, about how Jesus was crucified, risen and exalted. He sees 3,000 people choose to be baptised on that same day. 3,000 as a result of, as a, as a recognition of their desire to change. 
Peter is instrumental in the first recorded healing miracle of the early church. He's put in prison. He's released by an angel. He confronts skin, uh, sin with scary discernment. He walks the street of Jerusalem with such an anointing that the sick who want to be healed just try to get so that his shadow falls on them. Imagine that. Not just when you pray for me, but when you just walk over here so that your shadow falls on me and then I think I'll be, I'll be well. That's what it was like for Peter. This is Peter, Mr. Foot in Mouth. Mr. Gets it wrong every time, but somehow is recommissioned refilled, and filled with God's spirit in, in Acts chapter 2. But he's got his heart in the right place. Peter too was the one who, who was given that commission not just to preach the good news to the people of Israel, but to the rest of the world, to the Gentiles. Um, if you read your Bibles, Acts 10, 11, 12, somewhere around there, Cornelius is the passage I'm thinking about there. And even today, Peter is honoured, um, along with Paul, as, as if it were the, the two that are the most significant founding leaders of the church to which we belong. What hope, what restoration Jesus offered to Peter, but offers to, to, to us too. Now, I think we need to apply some of this to Francesca as well. We're about to baptise her on account of the declared faith of those who bring her to baptism. In many ways, it's the start of a journey for her, a start of a journey of discovery of God's love, hopefully too of discovery of God's forgiveness and of God's desire for her heart to be right before him. And it will be so much easier for Francesca to discover all of this if those around her, so her parents, godparents, wider family, friends too, if they're all pulling in the same direction. So what's best for Francesca is actually your heart. So I say today, will you have that courage to, res- courage to find God's help for today, but also to respond rightly to his desire to deal with the past. It's a wonderful, amazing journey that we set Francesca on today. Will you travel with her, knowing that God wants to help you face up to your past, that he wants to forgive you, that he wants to restore you, heal you, and recommission you for the future? Let me finish with a story. Stories told uh, of two incidents that happened. An angry man rushed uh, into a particular museum in Amsterdam and he reached Rembrandt's famous painting called Night Watch. He took out a knife and he slashed it repeatedly before he could be stopped. A short time later, a distraught, hostile man slipped into St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome um, with a hammer and began to smash up Michelangelo's beautiful sculpture, the Pieta. Two cherished works of art were severely damaged. Now, what did the, art, the, the curators, the officials do? Did they throw those works of art out and say they're rubbish now? No. The best experts who worked with utmost care and precision made every effort to restore those treasures, to restore those treasures to where they were before. Now, you, each of us, are far more precious to God than a work of art. God made us. God has a plan for us. He sent Jesus to restore us. Not only from the damage done to us by others, but from the damage we have done to ourselves. And when Jesus restores us, he doesn't just patch us up. He makes all things new.
Now, Anne is going to lead us in um, opportunity to respond to that, um, including a confession where we um, have that opportunity to put ourselves right with God, um, not just for today. Anna. We're going to...